getting out of the way, allowing the Lord to lead as the Lord wants to lead. There's a couple in our church that have done exactly that. Lord, whatever you want, whatever you want. The truth is that for years they've been sensing that they knew what the Lord wanted. But now it's all come together. And there's a new chapter opening up for them. When you came in, you saw in your seat a card there about Blake and Kara Sherman and their, their purpose to go to England in missionary work into a city that is, well, I was almost going to say destitute of the gospel. Not true. There is a gospel witness there, but very, very few people follow Christ. We sometimes think of England as a Christian nation, but it is nothing of the sort. But God has laid his hand on Blake and on Kara and have call, has called them to this ministry to England, and we want you to know about it. We want to tell you about it. So Blake and Kara, would you all come on up? And we've been waiting for this week for some time to be able to share with you guys. This is an exciting time. Because, well, someone's excited. This is an exciting time because, gosh, you guys have been praying about this for a long, long time. And I know you and I talked back in September, just kind of exploring it. And you know, that's a long time to keep something to yourself. That is a long time. But the Lord has kind of been orchestrating things and, well, tell us what's going on. Yes, uh, you don't know. Church. I just kind of want to share a little bit about how my heart developed. But yeah, I grew up here, seventh grader, that back corner. I spent most of my time filling out fake visitor cards. It's just like a nuisance. Um, so I grew up in this church, went to the youth ministry. And then after I graduated, I felt called to take a gap year. And uh, Bob Johns connected me with the church in England in Red Car. And so I served there for a year, came back. And then started working for Bob, and then Bob started having me lead uh, teams in England every other year. And every time I would go back, my heart would just kind of stir, and I just felt this call. And uh, that's kind of how there's a lot more that God has done recently, but that's kind of like my history with England. And Carrie, you want to share? So I uh, also grew up in the youth group here at Woodway, and so I got to go on one of those short-term trips to England in 2010, and that was really my first exposure to a post-Christian culture where being a Christian was not socially advantageous. Um, it was very much, it, it was thought to be silly um, and foolish. And so um, my heart was really burdened just for the darkness of that country, but I was also really encouraged to see the hard-earned fruits of ministry in that place. Um, so I was really drawn to it, really burdened by it. Um, and so I got to return for a little longer stint of time in 2012. I got to spend a summer there with Kimberly Garth, who this church sent over there to work for a few years, um, and got to walk alongside her and see what ministry in that kind of situation looks like, uh, and was just really encouraged and really hopeful and um, even more burdened by it. Um, and so God thankfully called me back to the States. I didn't get to hunker down over there. Uh, I got to finish college and meet this guy who also has a heart for England. So it worked out really well. God knew what he was doing. Um, but yeah, just over the years, our heart has just grown for that place. We've got to host um, some workers coming from England over here, and we've got to send people over there. And 
uh, revisit the ministry connections that we have over there. Um, so it's just been really sweet to see what God has done over the years. Yeah, actually, one of the agreements that we came to before we got married is that we were like, you want to go to England, right? Because I want to go to England. It's just something we talked about a lot before we got married. And so that being the case, about like every big transition that we've had in our marriage with uh, new jobs or buying a house or anything like that, we've always asked the question, well, what about England? Because uh, God has always placed that in our hearts. And so at every transition, we've asked, what about England? And, you know, at some steps, God was like, no, I want you to do college ministry right now. And, and we followed him there, followed him to young adult ministry. And we really feel that God is calling us now to go serve overseas with Greater Europe Mission in Birmingham. And so uh, there's a lot of information about Birmingham there. Um, but we want to go and participate in church planning, discipleship, and really uh, serving the local church. And they told us, we'll use you in whatever you can do. They said all the churches here need more workers. And so if you can preach, you're going to end up preaching. If you can lead worship, you're going to end up leading worship. And so uh, we're excited to go do all that. And I just have to say, for me, uh, being able to do this out of Woodway is such a blessing because y'all are my church family. Um, not only was I discipled here, but I was raised as a minister here. Um, I was thinking about the first sermon I gave back at WNL, and I was like shaking like a leaf in the back. And uh, now I get to stand up here and talk. And it's just, it's, it blows my mind about the opportunities that y'all have created for us as a family. And so we're so thankful. And also, I told Kara over and over during this process, I just said, you know, there aren't a lot of young ministers that are in my position that I go and tell my boss, hey, I'm thinking about going overseas and leaving. And he doesn't just say, okay, bye. You know, like, he didn't just, you know, cut me off, but uh, he basically told me, hey, we want to keep you here. We really do, but let's, let's see what God's doing here. And it was nice to have one place of just absolute security, and that was my home church, uh, that I didn't have to be concerned about what lay ahead, because there's going to be a lot of other insecurities, but my home church was a place of security for me. Um, and, you know, for our kids... That's one of the big questions for us, because this is our community, this is our family. We wanted this to be their family and community. And we're just really trusting that God has a better inheritance plan for them than we do ourselves. And uh, if I'm gonna, I'm a preacher, so I'm gonna preach it a little bit. And I'll just say this, um, you know, we, there's always so many objections that come to mind whenever God starts calling you to something. But if Jesus is in fact the way, the truth, and the life, then all those objections fall apart. And that's kind of what happened for us is that we just said, look, if this, is, if this is actually Jesus and he's calling us to this, then we can't resist this and we have to follow him. And so we're excited about what God has in store for us and we're excited that uh, y'all could be a part of it. We are excited to be a part of it. This church, uh, part of what we want to be is a church that cares about the world. Uh, we've sent out the Eklund family from our church. They're serving overseas even now because we got behind them and helped them do it. That's what we're talking now with the Shermans, to get behind them and support them in absolutely every way we can. Now, it's taken me a while to get here, I gotta tell you. It didn't exactly go down the way Blake's describing when he came to talk to me. What I actually said something was on the order of, Blake, I'm sure this is probably God's will, I'll grant you that. Now that we've settled it, how can I talk you into staying? So it's taken me a little while to get with the divine program, if you know what I mean, because I'm just so grateful for this couple and, and what they have meant to us. But you know what? You send your best 
to do the most important work, and this is that. And so I'm just glad we're going to have a part, and I'm glad that you guys aren't really leaving. You're going on mission. You're coming back. You got a gig here to preach every time you're back, Blake. And, and we're excited to be part of it. And listen, that card tells you how you can be part of it. Certainly, prayer, we all need to be praying, and that's not a secondary consideration. We really do need to pray and ask God's blessing upon the Shermans as they, as they pursue this. You can also see a l- little bit of information there on how you can give. They can't go unless they are sent. And that means more than just, oh, well, bless you. It means us getting behind them and giving. And we're going to do that. Um, I've said, Blake, you know, you know this church. We'll get behind you and Kara, and we're going to get you over there, and it's going to be amazing. In fact, Greater Europe Mission is going to be amazed when they find out how quickly the Shermans are able to raise support because this church cares about missions and this church believes in these two. Am I right about that? Amen. Amen. So I'm going to pray for you guys now, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Blake. We thank you for Kara. Thank you for the boys, this whole family that you have been with all these years that you have used in so many ways. And Lord, they have been here in this congregation among us, and we've been so grateful for that. But now, at least for a season, you're sending them elsewhere. Lord, that is a fact. We know that it's your calling. Your hand has been shown in so many ways. We pray that you would provide for them everything they need to begin this new work. We pray you would grant them that, Lord, including the financial support they need. But we also pray, Lord, that during these next very few months that you would do a work in them Bind them together, bind them close to yourself, fill them with your spirit, lead them clearly, and use them for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Bless you all. Oh, my goodness. I always loved having Blake come here and preach, and, I, and he's going to preach some more before he goes, but it's like, oh my goodness, I, I wanted to hear him preach. I'd get these Sundays off. I'd get to sit there and just soak in a good sermon, be praying for these two. Will you do that? Let me mention a couple other things real quickly, things that you'll want to know. So tomorrow, uh, the staff is going to leave first thing in the morning for a staff retreat. We're, we're sort of regrouping and re-upping as we move into a new phase here with the summer as things are continuing to open up. We need to get together, pray, think through some things. So we're not going to be here Monday and we won't be back till the second of the afternoon of Tuesday. The office will be open, but it's not going to be fully staffed and I just wanted y'all to know about that. We'll just be down in Salado. If some emergency happens, um, we'll be able to respond appropriately. Then the second thing is that June 6th, that's the first Sunday in June, we're making a little change in the Sunday morning schedule. It won't affect you too much except that the, this service will be at 11 o'clock instead of 11.15. 
For most of you, that's a good thing. For some college students and others, maybe not so good. You're fighting for every extra 15 minutes you can get. But it's going to be 11 o'clock. We'll have two services, one at 9.30 and one at 11. That's because going back to two services fits more what we normally do. We've been in three trying to spread out. But with people getting shots and, you know, the immunity rising through the whole population, I think it's time for us to begin that process of moving forward. So that's going to be the first Sunday in June. Some people have asked, well, are we going back to the venue? Some of you may have wondered, are we going back to the venue? The answer is no. There are several reasons for that, but the simplest one is this. We need space for our life groups. The life groups meet over here in this building that's behind, just behind you. And we moved the youth from those classrooms over into the venue to make space for all our life groups. If we move the youth back so that we can have a worship service in the venue, we have no room left at all. And so we're trying to adjust and coordinate all the different things that are going on. So it'll be two services in this space starting June 6th. All right? Now we're going to go back to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. I'm going to focus in the last part of that chapter. If you've already been to Life Group, it's very likely that you've been studying John 3 already. The first half is where most of our life groups have been. But I want to focus on the last part of John chapter 3. It's a fascinating passage on many levels. Uh, It speaks of the one who is above, meaning Jesus. And it contrasts Jesus with the one who is of the earth. In the first place, it means John the Baptist, but really it means any teacher, any preacher, any prophet who isn't like Jesus God in flesh. All such people are of the earth. They're just merely human. But Jesus comes directly from heaven. And Jesus speaks the word of God. He speaks it truly and fully because he himself is the word. As Blake put it, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He can do it because he's received the spirit without limit, more literally without measure, The rabbis often spoke of the prophets each having a measure of the Spirit. Whatever they needed for their ministry, they would receive the Spirit to that degree. But John tells us Jesus received the Spirit without measure. And as Jesus comes, he brings a message from heaven proclaimed in the power of the Spirit and calls people to decision. So let's read it. Verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, 
for God's wrath remains on them. It was probably, oh, I guess a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, I was talking with a friend of mine about some of the racial strife in our country. This was before the explosion of the last summer, but it's not like the, the troubles began in the summer. I mean, they've been going on for quite some time, in fact, for a long, long time. But it's taken new shape in our day, and we were talking about that, and it was an interesting conversation. My friend is African-American. He's a minister. He works for a huge Christian nonprofit organization. It's got a ministry around the world. We're comparing notes, and we agreed on almost everything. I mean, almost every issue. We pretty much saw things eye to eye. And then I said something that made him bristle. I said, you know, it's just so complicated. And he said, listen, I just got to say, when I talk to white evangelicals about abortion, they never say it's complicated. When I talk to them about abortion, they always say, you know what? This is pretty simple. This is pretty clear. Right and wrong. And then we start talking about race. I start hearing it's complicated. And that seems like an excuse for not doing anything about it. Well, that caused me to do some thinking. Truth is, I still think it's complicated. It's complicated because it involves a lot of issues. It involves a long history. It involves not just race, but class issues. It evolves the way or it involves the way a, a whole economy is structured. There are lots of things involved. I don't think it's a simple fix. But ever since my friend pushed me on that, I've thought about this issue and a lot of other issues differently because isn't it true that as complicated as it might be on this level, when you penetrate down to the very bottom, it's really not that complicated. Either all human beings are created in the image of God and have equal worth and dignity, or they don't. It's that simple, isn't it? As complicated as things may be, at root, at core, that's the moral choice with which we're faced. If that choice is made to affirm the equal dignity and value of all people, then you get to the complicated stuff. You start really making progress. You start working those things out. But the most important thing right at the beginning is that you decide that first issue, and not everybody's there. Not everybody's there. So complex issues, they may be complex, but there's also fundamental decisions that are rather simple that have to be made when talking about those things. Well, think about the religious life of a community. Talk about complex. Everybody has different background. Everybody has learned different things growing up. We all have our own perspective on things, and there are many different religions, not just one, many different religions. And so certainly, when you start talking about spiritual things, you get into very complicated discussions. But here's the interesting thing. Yes, it's complicated, but when you get down to the root of it, according to the New Testament, according to the passage we just read, according to everything that Jesus taught, it gets very, very simple. Either 
You choose light or you choose darkness. You choose life or you choose death. You receive Jesus Christ and put your faith in him, or as this passage reads literally in the Greek, you disobey Christ and you live under the wrath of God. It's that stark. It's that simple. Yes, there are lots of other issues that come into play, but when you get to the heart of it, that's where it all begins. That's, that's what really matters. It's life or it's death. Now, of course, when we're talking about the wrath of God, we all understand that, that the wrath of God is not just an explosion of God's bad temper. The wrath of God is God's holiness, his purity, his uncompromising perfection. It's God upholding the integrity of the created order. It's God not bending to our wickedness. It's God saying that if you insist on beating against truth and goodness and the reality I have established, then you will be broken. That's what we're talking about with wrath. And it's clear from the scripture that ultimately it gets that simple. All the differences among us, it gets real simple when you get to the heart of it. You receive Christ in faith or you do not. And so in this passage, when it speaks of those who believe in Jesus, they experience eternal life and those who, who do not, they live under wrath. It's in the present tense. And in John, that's very important because the other gospel writers tend to speak of eternal life as future and judgment as future. They don't exclusively speak of it that way, but that's what they emphasize. John is interesting because he doesn't deny the future aspect, but he emphasizes the present. That is, to believe in Jesus Christ is to experience even now eternal life and to disobey Christ, to refuse to believe, because that's what's in view here. To reject Christ is to live under wrath even now to live in light, to live in darkness, even now. Now, we don't see this. We don't see this because when, you know, we look at humanity, well, people, it's complicated. It's just complicated. And you've got Christians who are not always very Christian-like, and you've got unbelievers, even atheists, who sometimes seem to be as loving and as kind as any Christian that we know. So it, it's, not a simple, it's not a simple thing to distinguish those who've received life from those who receive death. But according to the New Testament, there is a distinction, and God knows it. We may not recognize, but God knows it. It's like this. Some people have received eternal life, and for them, the sun on the horizon is rising. It's morning. It's not yet full brightness of noonday. That's going to come when Jesus returns and when they live forever in the presence of God. That's when the light of God, the glory of God will fill the universe. Right now, the sun is on the horizon, but it is rising and there's a great glorious future ahead. There are others, they live and the sun is on the horizon but it's the end of the day. The sun is going down. It's setting. 
and what's ahead of them is darkness. There is light for both, light on the horizon for both, but in one case it's rising, in the other case it's setting. And all the complication in the world doesn't change that fundamental fact that Jesus sets forth. He calls us to decision. There is a decision between two alternatives. There's no escaping that. There's no escaping it. Sometimes it comes down to something that simple, and that's what we see here. That's what we see in the whole Gospel of John. The New Testament, but again, especially in John, he talks about the presence of salvation, the presence of judgment. He also talks about the either-or, for the truth, against the truth, for Christ, against Christ. We're faced with that choice. Now, that's a serious thing to hear because if you're standing on you know, the outside or maybe straddling the fence deciding, am I going to follow Christ or not? You really don't have that option. You either decide to follow him or you don't. It's one or the other. That's a sobering truth. I mean, that's, that's a warning for all of us that a decision needs to be made. And if we make the wrong decision, it will, well, it'll cost us everything. On the other hand, it's extremely encouraging because if we make the decision for Christ, we step out of darkness into light. We enter in this new sphere of grace. And though we are far from perfect, we live under the perfect will or love of God, and we live under the favor of God. And we have reason for great joy and, and, and peace in him. So my youngest daughter, Lauren, played basketball when she was in middle school. And in seventh grade, she was on the B team. But in eighth grade, she tried out and made the A team. I called her last night to make sure I got the details right. And she said, well, you be sure to tell them that I tried out and I made the A team. But the truth is, I sprained my ankle during tryouts. And I spent the whole time with my foot in a bucket of ice. Coach Frazier, I guess, felt sorry for me. She let me on the team because of it. So Lauren makes the A team in the eighth grade. Now, this was quite a team. This team won district, and then they had the, the tournament for the district championship, and they won that as well. They blew everybody out every game. It wasn't really because of Lauren. Lauren spent most of her time on the bench. She told me last night when I said, you know, you got to play pretty much every game. She said, yeah, I got to play a few minutes every game. She said, I wasn't a total bench warmer, but I was always relieved when the coach took me out. They had a couple of girls on the team that were incredible. One was named Brittany. She ended up playing for the WNBA. Another was Nikki, and she was almost as good. So those were the girls that carried the team. Lauren would go in there for particular periods, and she'd do her best, and she'd tell you, she wasn't all that. I mean, she was doing her best, but she wasn't all that, and she spent more time on the bench than on the court, and she was good with that because she said, really, what I liked most of all, we got to wear cool sweats and carry our equipment bag around on the days we were playing games, so she'd go from class to class wearing her stuff like, you know, I'm on the A-team kind of thing. So that's what she got to do. So 
they won this great championship, not because Lauren, if Lauren wasn't on the team, they would have won it anyway. But they won it. And she was on the team. And when that buzzer went off on that final game and the celebration started, guess who was involved in the celebration? Lauren was celebrating. Maybe her parents were too. It was a great time. We're celebrating. The team won, and Lauren was on the team. Was she the best player? No. Was, was, was she the one that was going to be there in the clutch moment? Probably not. But she did her best, and she did what was needed, and she was on the team, and she was part of that great victory. So here is this decision that has to be made, and it is an either-or. It's a sobering decision for life or death. And we have to make that choice. But if we choose Christ, the liberty that comes with that is that we are now on the team. We're on the team. You may not be all that. You look at your life and you think, you know what? I am not the greatest Christian in the world. I'm trying, I'm trying to grow, I'm trying to learn how to follow Christ, but I still struggle with temptations, I still, I still have a hard time, and I get frustrated with myself. That may all be true, but you're on the team. See, there's a liberty in having one decision. You make that one decision, you are on the team, you come into the sphere of grace, you are now living under the favor of God, even while you're trying to up your skill level, even while you're trying to do better and often failing, you know, that three steps forward, two steps back thing, even while all that's going on, you're on the right team. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven. The sun, the morning sun is rising and your future is secure. Now, in a moment, we're going to share the Lord's Supper. You got one of these little packets, I think, when you came in. You might start fiddling with it. Sometimes it's hard to open. But I want you to think about the Lord's Supper for just a minute. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about observing the Lord's Supper, and he says something that has, it's just troubled so many Christians. And it's because they don't really pay attention to what Paul is saying. He says that before partaking, you need to examine yourselves, he says, lest you take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Now, a lot of Christians have read that and they thought, oh my goodness, you know, I, I don't know that I should even eat or drink because look at my life. I'm not all that. But that's not what Paul's talking about there. You go back and read 1 Corinthians 11 yourself later. If you read the whole passage, you'll see that in Corinth, the church was divided between the rich and the poor. And the Lord's Supper was part of a larger meal they called the agape. It was a feast that they would enjoy together. And then the Lord's Supper, where they'd eat the bread, drink the wine, remembering Christ's death. That would happen within that dinner that they shared. But what happened was the rich people were providing the best food for themselves and would eat freely, and the poor would have little or nothing to eat. 
you had this class distinction taking place within the church. And so when they were observing the Lord's Supper, he says, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. You're just feeding yourselves. That's all you're doing. This isn't the way you observe the Lord's Supper. You need to examine yourselves, lest you eat in an unworthy manner and God judge you for it. That's what Paul's talking about there. He's not saying, listen, you're not perfect. You're not really holy then you shouldn't partake of the Lord's Supper. He's not saying that at all. He's talking about the whole way it's being observed as as dishonoring God by dishonoring people. So to whom is the Lord's Supper given? Well, Jesus gave his body. He yielded his blood on the cross to save sinners. The Lord's Supper is for those who know they're sinners and are trusting in the atoning work of Christ. That's who it's for. You don't have to be all that. You don't have to be all that. You don't have to be the star Christian. You have to be someone who's looking to him and trusting in him. You just have to be on the team. And if you're on the team, you can take encouragement knowing that your sins have been atoned for, that the grace of God surrounds your whole life, that while you're working, striving, praying, making an effort to be faithful in following Christ, he's faithful to stand with you through it all. 